Okay, we're on. Hi, this is Michael Waits, and welcome back to the Data-Driven Podcast, sponsored by Expresso.ai. Expresso.ai is a lifecycle management platform for artificial intelligence and machine learning applications. It is built on an integrated set of frameworks and accelerators to help data scientists build cognitive solutions quickly and easily. Today, we are joined by Eva Gumnishka, the CEO of Humans in the Loop. Eva, how are you doing today? I'm great, Michael. Thanks. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Can can we get a little bit of your background for context, please? Yeah, sure. I'm born and raised in Bulgaria. It's a small country for in Eastern Europe, for those who are too far away geographically of us to, to know. Oh my God. I, I grew up here. I studied in a Spanish high school. I went afterwards to the United States. So I'm kind of, you know, an internationally minded person. But uh, after graduating, I decided to come back home and uh, to start developing a company in my hometown. Uh, and the reason was that, you know, all of us internationally minded people, we always want to change the world. Right. And thankfully, you know, through my studies, I learned that this is a little bit of an illusion and you can't really change the world unless you start close to home. So this was the reason why after graduating, I decided to just come back and uh, start my own thing. The other reason was that, you know, I was uh, in New York at that time. I was studying at Columbia and the prospects in front of, you know, somebody who's just graduating from his undergrad is basically starting an unpaid internship somewhere, especially for people like me, you know, I was interested in the UN, big organizations, and you always have to start at the lowest ladder. But for me, that wasn't enough. I wanted to start something of my own. So the best fit for me was just to go back home and to start, you know, a a company of my own and be my own boss, you know, kind of the millennial dream. Okay. This brings up so many other questions for me. Let's start here. Why did you end up going to Colombia? And actually, the first question before that is, do you really think people don't know about Bulgaria? Like when you travel and you say, I'm from Bulgaria, do you get people saying like, oh, I have no idea, never heard of that before kind of thing? Yeah, some people say, oh, Hungary. Really? And I'm like, no, no. <laughs> or some of them say, oh, Budapest. And I'm like, no, not that close, but not really. <laughs> um, and it's fine because the Balkans, especially, I mean, this part of the world is that there's quite a few like smaller countries and all of them are like, similarly sounding names to foreigners, I guess. So it's perfectly fine. I'm, I'm quite used to this. That's fascinating to me. So why did you decide to go to Colombia? As I mentioned, I was studying in a Spanish school. Uh, so I was very passionate about Latin America, about Spain. But of course, the allure of the Ivy League and uh, all of those prestigious universities reached me as well. And actually, the reason was that I had a friend who was Puerto Rican and she got accepted at Stanford, you know, the year before me. And I was like, hey, you know, I know this girl. She's just like me. Uh, And she managed to get into this awesome school. So something that seemed unreachable, especially from Bulgaria, suddenly became a a possibility. You know, it, it became something real. So, you know, it was just a matter of a lot of hard work, but I think, you know, what they value a lot is you being yourself during admissions. You know, it's all about being your unique personality as much as you can be at like 18 or 17 years old. But, you know, they're really interested in unique people with unique interests and achievements. So I think I could just convince them in that. So this is how I ended up at Columbia. When you watched your friend 
get into Stanford and had the realization that I am just like she is. So no longer the unreachable, no longer the unreachable seems unreachable, but it feels possible. Did you get kind mm -hmm. of a deeper understanding than how important it is to have role models and mentors so that other, other young ladies like you need to be able to see people do the things that they think are impossible so that then they can believe that they're possible? Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. And even, I mean, for me, she was just a peer, you know, so seeing your peers succeed yeah. in something and right. being successful, of course, that can also backfire and can be very damaging. And you can feel like, oh, I'm such a failure. Everybody is getting into these great schools. Everybody is founding companies. You know, at every stage of your life, there are a lot of people that you can compare yourself with and sure. think about, you know, all the glamorous things that they're going through, which is, of course, an illusion as well. But it can be very stimulating if you decide to say, okay, I'm just like this person. I'm capable of doing this as well, like that, and even better. Yeah. And tell me why you feel, I mean, I, I do understand this whole idea of like starting at the bottom with an unpaid internship, which frankly, I think at some level should be illegal. If you're working, I think <laughs> you should get paid. Like, I don't know if it's a job, isn't there some kind of income that has to be associated with it? We can address that later. But what is this illusion of changing the world and why do you think you have to do it close to home first? Yeah, okay. So changing the world, this comes from my background in human rights uh, because this is what I studied and I was very passionate about social change, you know, humanity, social sciences in general. Uh, and I had always imagined myself working at some international organization and being, you know, a, a fancy diplomat or whatever, um, just because I was also interested in international relations and languages and cultures. But then, you know, at Columbia, this is uh, what I really appreciate about the school is that the decolonial narrative and the narrative, which is uh, kind of, you know, postmodern about all of these colonial uh, desires of improving the lives of others and changing them for the better and showing them, you know, how to live. This is actually quite, quite risky. And usually you're just imposing something on a person who has a completely different culture and different values. And maybe they don't want their lives to be improved in the way that you're envisioning. So I recognize that this is a little bit I wouldn't say imperialist because out of Bulgaria, you can't really be imperialist. But that, let's say that, you know, being being in the States, which is a country that has, in, you know, in the recent decades had quite a big role on, on the international scale. And even using the discourse of human rights has uh, invaded foreign countries and, you know, occupations. We all know what I'm talking about. You know, I was very careful about using the discourse of human rights for making like different interventions in the lives of others, especially even when it comes to international development and all of these like humanitarian aid programs and so on. So the, the safest way, which I found was to start close to home where I actually know how things are. I can navigate the environment. I wouldn't be a foreigner coming in trying to fix the others. I would be somebody acting from the inside. At a much higher level, there is this imperialistic and colonialist nature that a theory that says the sophisticated can tame the savages and mm. improve their lives. But I love this thing that you're saying where, and I agree, and I've said this for years, right? It's like, I don't know what kind of lifestyle you want. And just rocking up to your country or your town or your city and telling you this is the better way is anathema to me. 
So now I understand your point, and I like it actually. I like it quite a lot. The idea yeah. that it's easier to have an impact close to home because you understand the lay of the land already, and because you're culturally in symbiosis with the people that are there, you know what a good life means to them because you're part of them. And I love the fact that you went home to do it. Tell me about Humans in the Loop. What was the idea? How did it start? Tell me more. It all started as a social project, actually, because the refugee crisis in Europe was just happening. You know, it started in 2013. I just went to Colombia at that point. So I practically missed all of the turmoil that was happening at the border. In Bulgaria, there were some notorious like refugee hunters who were going, they were just like some self-organized civilian militias going around the border and patrolling it. So it was very scary what was happening in the country. You know, uh, Bulgaria tend to be quite patriotic and nationalistic and do not accept migrants um, and, and refugees coming into their country. So for me, it was really difficult to see how the media was portraying the issue and so on. So this, you know, Humans in the Loop did start as a social project. And then okay. when trying to build something sustainable out of it, we decided to frame it as a company and to actually sell services, you know, choose a niche where our services would be useful. So this is how we ended up in the field of data annotation for AI, which is something that I personally didn't have any experience with before. <laughs> getting started with it, we just ended up there because um, we saw that there is such a big market need for this. Back in 2017, there weren't that many companies doing it. Now it's a very burgeoning market, um, but it's great. You know, it's so dynamic. There is so much need for this. There are so many things happening, so many companies developing solutions. The ecosystem is really rich and it's great being part of this. So this is how we ended up as a workforce provider for human insights and input for improving and training artificial intelligence solutions. So can you just dig into more detail for people that don't understand what that means when you talk about annotation for artificial intelligence? There's got to be sort of multiple elements to this. And if you can just walk through how that works... And then go through where you, I want to go through some of the products for lack of a better term, but I want people to get a deeper understanding of exactly what that means if they're not experts in the field. Sure. I mean, if they are fans of your podcast, they must have heard Tristan talking about the technical side of what we do. Probably. So the tools that enable humans to annotate images, we are kind of a complementary aspect of this. We are the humans that are using these tools for annotation purposes. The basic scenario is that a company is trying to develop a computer vision detector or a classifier for a particular object, let's say a classifier for apples, and they're collecting data, a data set with apples. Uh, we can also be the ones that help them in collecting this data set. And then basically this data set has to be annotated in order uh, to train the artificial intelligence model to understand what an apple looks like. So that means that your data set has to be quite varied. It has to feature apples from a lot of different viewpoints and angles and edge cases and, you know, rotten apples and uh, yellow ones and, and green ones as well as uh, red ones. And then a human has to go through them and prepare this data set and mark what we as humans seeing these images because for computers it's just random pixels so we pick the pixels in certain coordinates and we say okay th there is an apple right here uh and we do that a hundred thousand times and this is how we end up with a fully annotated data set 
So does that, thank you. <laughs> thank you for acknowledging. Does that mean that if you have an unpeeled apple, so just one right there, let's just call it a green apple, right? My favorite kind of apple, Granny Smith. And like you said, the computer looks at it and just sees pixels. Maybe it, maybe it can see them as green pixels, but there's a stem coming out of the top in a shape of an apple and sort of ridges around it as well. When you talk about annotating, are you literally talking about writing, and probably not writing, but like entering information about that 100,000 times? So you say a stem that looks like this and the, the skin of the apple feels like this or looks like this? Like what exactly are they writing or annotating? Yeah, so the nice thing about the current neural networks that are being used by companies is that you don't necessarily need to have an algorithmic approach to identifying objects and saying, okay, if it has a stem plus this type of skin and it's red or yellow or green, then it's an apple, you right. know? We're not using such approaches. We're just saying, okay, this thing as a whole is an apple. We don't care about you know how you end up interpreting this, uh, but we give you a hundred thousand examples of apples. Just learn what an apple looks like and try to extrapolate this and identify apples in the real world afterwards. You know, it's a black box. We don't really know what's happening there, but in the end, we're hoping that by giving enough examples, we're going to be able to teach the model to recognize other types of apples as well. So it's basically like teaching a child. You know, we are not necessarily explaining the actual component it's just okay this is a, called an apple and this is called an apple and the child eventually learns to recognize okay this might be what we call an apple wait that's actually really interesting you kind of said this as a little bit of a throwaway line but i talk about this when i talk about language learning right hmm. you know when i first moved to japan and even now in thailand people would say to me at the beginning you know you speak thai like a three-year-old boy hmm and I said, that's because I am a three-year-old boy in Thai. Yeah. <laughs> right? And the other thing that I encourage people to do when they're learning a language is that I don't want you to translate for me. Because when you're a kid, like my mother didn't say, that's a dog. And in English, it's a dog. It was just a dog. So kind of what you're saying, it's a really interesting view onto how that annotation works. It's just like, I'm not telling you why. I'm just telling you what it is. Is that, is that fair? Yeah, I'm just telling you what it is, and then you develop your own intuition about it. That's so interesting. And do you just, are someone really labeling it? They're just like at a keyboard, just going Apple, 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 like that? Exactly. And that depends on the taxonomy that you choose. Tell so me. if you want to just detect apples, you just have one class called Apple. But maybe you want to detect apples and pears and peaches. And then you have three classes that you want to label. But then what happens if you see a tomato come in and you don't really have a class for it? You're only able to recognize apples and peaches and pears. So in that case, how we define the taxonomy becomes very important because maybe it enables us to detect, you know, three types of fruit, but all the vegetables to us are kind of unknown. We're just not able to recognize them. Maybe we are going to mislabel the red tomato as a red apple, just because this is the only thing that we understand exists in the world. So in that sense, it's very important how we structure our classes, what type of data we feed the model, and of course, how we annotate it. I would say the annotation part is the most restricted part. Usually what happens is our clients come to us and they say, hey, we want to... And, recognize different types of apples. Here is our taxonomy and they have either different colors of apples or different species of apples. And then we just annotate them. So it's a very restricted task uh, where we have a restricted dictionary 
and we're not allowed to just enter any random keyword. It's just one of these five types of apples. So this is also quite risky. You know, what if there is another apple that just doesn't appear in our dictionary? What do we do there? Right. So there has to be quite a lot of iterations there between us and the client testing the model on new data because there is also data drift. Maybe some new varieties of apples come out and we just don't know about them and so on. So yeah, I would say it's it's quite tricky. Labeling is the easiest part, but what comes before this in terms of collecting the data, setting up the taxonomy is actually the more sensitive part. So can you talk to me about data quality? Right, you said yeah. you said getting the right data, but also the taxonomy. So both of those things must at some level go hand in hand, right? In other words, if the if the premise, which is basically the taxonomy, right? If your premise about the things that you're trying to identify is not complete or is just wrong, then the output is going to be wrong and the data is not, the data quality is not going to be high either, right? So how do those things go together and how do you go about working with your clients to make sure that those things are right? And then on the back end, how about the people that you employ to go through and do that annotation? I mean, it's humans in the loop. I'm presuming a lot of humans are doing this. So data quality is different depending on the use case. We can basically split the use cases that we work on in two types. One is a controlled environment and the other one is in the wild. A controlled environment is much easier because you have, for example, a static camera in a recycling plant. So you have your conveyor belt going through with all different types of plastics and waste material on it. And the camera is not looking elsewhere. It's just sitting in one spot, just sitting, seeing all types of plastics and paper going through this. So it cannot recognize anything else, but it doesn't even have to because it's not going to be exposed to any types of animals or humans or plants. Everything, its entire world is just plastics and paper, right? So such types of controlled environments are much easier first to collect data for because you already have the camera, you already have, you know, this conveyor belt. So you can easily collect a lot of images for this. And then also the taxonomy is easier to define because you might have, you know, five different types of plastic that you want to distinguish. Maybe you want to get even more granular and sort them and depending on their type. But this is what a lot of our clients are working on because in this case, it's much easier to create a data set and, and a model which is going to be very, which is going to produce very high and accurate results in this controlled environment. For in the wild applications, it's a mess, you know, you maybe are developing a mobile phone application and users are might point it towards a ton of different stuff. You know, if it's for, for example, plant recognition, maybe users are going to point it towards plants that do not even exist in your training data set, right. or maybe they're going to point it towards plants that are, you know, from a lot of different angles or in weird backgrounds. So in that case, it's much more challenging and the data quality has to be let's say that the, the whole data set has to be much more diverse and you have to account for tons of more edge cases. So in that case, the representative of the data set is really what matters. Are you sometimes, I'm just, you, you may have seen my eyes kind of darting around the room while you were talking. This whole concept of a controlled environment, it was really interesting to me and I'm trying to dumb it down for myself. In other words, if it's just Michael, so a human with an active brain in a room, were there only, you know, glasses like this, glass bottles and television remote controls? Not only is it simplistic for me to identify them, 
but boring, like really mind-numbingly boring. And I was trying to look around the room and see if there was anything that I could not immediately, and I mean within picoseconds, identify. Nothing. And I guess I'm asking, does it amaze you sometimes just like how powerful the human brain is that we can do that? Because I'm basically sitting in the wild. That's why I was thinking about it, right? There's coffee, scissors, paper towels, chairs, camera, cables. Tel- you know what I mean? There's so many things instantaneously identified, not getting confused. What do you think yeah. that says about the state of the human brain, but also the state of machine learning and artificial intelligence? I think this is the biggest difference because right now we can detect objects using artificial intelligence, but understanding the meaning of this object yeah, is yeah. something that we really can't do without right. training data. Right. So the meaning of an apple, you know, maybe we can detect that, you know, such an object exists, but what is an apple, right? What is its purpose? What is it for? Maybe as humans, even if we have never seen an apple or maybe, you know, you come across an exotic fruit, you've never seen it before, but you can still kind of deduce that, hey, this might be a fruit that might be edible, maybe not. But, you know, as humans, we're able to understand the meaning of these objects. And I think that artificial intelligence is not at this stage yet. Maybe it will be. Maybe it will be. But that's such a great point, right? Yet. You're right. So maybe the cameras and the AI can identify it. But when it looks at that box of cars, table water, crackers, it doesn't know that those things are edible. And if you put cheese on top of it, they taste really great with wine kind of thing. Yeah. Unless you have a specific data set for That's what you know, I mean, types though. of crackers, which ones are edible, which ones are not, then you know you still need to have that human insight in some training data to categorize them into edible or not. Um, so you can create a data set for this. The thing is that without such a training data set, the, it's meaningless. What kind of process did you go through personally so that you could understand all of this terminology and the significance of this field to the point where you can have this conversation and actually run a business that does this? Yeah, that's a great question. In the beginning, I mean, back in 2017, there weren't that many tools for annotation. There weren't that many resources. I remember one of our clients, our first clients that we did, you know, a couple of uh, pilots with to, to just try out the concept. You know, they asked me for segment, semantic segmentation. I was like, what is even that? You know, I had to just Google it and, and find out what it meant. But right now there is so much information out there and people are publishing much more. And the whole field is growing, you know, it's becoming an actual field. You know, it's like everybody's talking about ML ops and data ops and so on. So uh, it's getting its own vocabulary. The annotators as well are becoming much more professional. You know, it's not only a matter of annotating cats and dogs, cats and dogs anymore right, on images. Right. You know, it's a matter of annotating specific types of plants or specific types of plastics. You have to develop quite a lot of expertise in that. So I think, you know, it's been fortunate because our company has been growing with the industry together. So we've been learning on the go. And as more and more content is being published about it, more and more people are talking about it. We're just getting more professional about what we do as well. What do you do for your ML ops? Because this is a thing that a lot of people overlook, right? They're like, the fun part is understanding the data and all this other stuff. The boring part is trying to figure out how do we organize all this stuff and have our machine learning operations actually be effective and scalable. What do you do there? Yeah, well, fortunately for me, at least, we don't do ML. 
we support our clients in doing it. So we don't have to deal with all of this mess that happens, you know, when you're versioning data and, and trying to make sense of all your experiments and so on. So our role here is mostly to counsel our clients on how to do this in a better way. We partner with a lot of people in the ecosystem uh, in terms of tools for data set uh, visualization, for annotation, for versioning. And so our role is to not only annotate your data set, but also suggest strategies in which you can structure your processes in a better way and make them more scalable. I want to understand, you said this started as sort of a social innovation project for you, and you ended up saying, if we want to make this sustainable good choice of words, by the way, we have to turn this into a business. It's also a business that's female-led and ethically minded as well. Why do all these things matter to you and how does that affect itself inside sort of the building of your business and the day-to-day -day running of it? That's a really great question and something that I'm really passionate about because the origin of the idea was rooted in social impact and ever since we started it, uh, this has been the main goal and mission of the entire organization. So the whole organization is built upon this premise of social impact. So all of our key metrics are related to social impact, everything that we're reporting on, everything that we care about, even our revenue. We're measuring our revenue in terms of money that we're able to channel towards our annotators. And you know, in terms of our expenses, we're always happy that we are having more and more expenses because that means that we're paying more and more people to perform annotation. We're being led by the market logic and the business logic, but uh, what we care about is the social impact that we're making through these B2B services that we're, um, that we're offering. So how it works is that we work with refugees and conflict-affected people. This is how we characterize them in general, because some of them are migrants, some of them are internally displaced, some of them are living in conflict areas, but we characterize them as a whole as conflict affected. And we have NGO partners in different countries across the Middle East. So we work here in Bulgaria, we work in Turkey, Syria, Iraq, Afghanistan, and Lebanon. Uh, and in all of these countries, we're trying to tap into the most vulnerable people who are, let's say, excluded from the labor market. They don't have access to employment. Um, maybe they've never worked online and their digital skills are not very advanced. So we're really trying to support these people who do not have other opportunities and to connect them to the global remote work market. You know, there are a lot of people like you and me who are very benefited by being able to work from home and remotely. And it actually offers us quite a lot of flexibility, but this is not a privilege that uh, a lot of people around the world can enjoy, right? So we're trying to open up the door towards these opportunities for such people, despite all the legal uh, obstacles, a lot of them are unbanked. And, you know, it's not that um, they don't have the goodwill or the skills or the motivation to do it. It's just that they're in, in such, mm, you know, harsh geopolitical situations currently. In a lot of these countries, there's so much political turmoil and armed conflict that it's just very hard to get access to services, to like PayPal or any other type of such digital solution. How do you pay them? In other words, if they're in, if they're in conflict zones or if they're conflict affected, how do you actually get payments to them, right? If they're unbanked and maybe they may not even have a smartphone, which is a privilege, right? Not a right. It should be a right at some level. How do you pay them? 
Yeah, so we work very closely with NGO partners. We are very lucky to be partnering with some really reliable and renowned institutions on the ground. And we usually do the payment transfer to these institutions and then they reimburse the people in um, stipend or cash for work format. So this is our way in, in which we can get uh, all of these people paid. Uh, and it's working very well for us just because in all of these countries, the ecosystem is so difficult to navigate that without such a local partner, it would be really hard for us to reach all of those people. What is the training process like? If you're dealing with people that are conflict affected, the idea probably is that they haven't been trained to do data annotation. How do you go about doing yeah. that? Data annotation is something that nobody has been trained to do. You know, it's such a new field. It, it's like, even if I take you, I would still have to teach you about, you know, what, what we talked about in the beginning of this conversation, how, what does that even mean? How do you annotate an image? What are the tasks and classes that you use? But fortunately, it's quite easy, you know, because we're humans where I don't have to teach them too much in order to label uh, apples versus pears versus tomatoes. Sure. The nuances there are much more in these annotators understanding their role in the entire supply chain. And this is something that we're trying to promote both among the annotators and our clients. Because data annotation is very frequently undervalued as something like, oh, it's just menial work that we have to go through in order to get this data set done. But I already mentioned, you know, some of the nuances and it's, it's much more nuanced than a lot of people imagine. And uh, there is so much uh, to be taken into account in terms of biases and uh, representation and so on. So we're trying to educate both our annotators about their very important role in building AI systems that are fair and reliable, them really understanding what they're working on. Okay, mm -hmm. why am I marking all of these apples? What is this going to be used for? And also, also our clients. So the Training is basically quite generic in terms of English, uh, digital skills. A lot of our partners on the ground have their own programs. And then we have specific annotation project trainings that teach them about this or that specific project or tool that they have to use. There are so many new automation features that they can use. So we're working very closely with different tool providers for that as well. One of the things that you explained at the beginning of this conversation was this idea that changing the world is an illusion and that if it's not elusive that it needs to be done locally do you feel like by training the people and paying the people that you're bringing into the workforce in conflict affected zones or areas that you're creating another generation of people who will end up being like you are and will be able to or will be enabled to create that change in their local community because now they are actually not unemployed or unemployable, but employable. Does that make sense? Yeah. I mean, impact is such a difficult thing to achieve. And we've been struggling a lot about this because it's always a trade-off. Are you going to provide more work to a fewer people uh, and to a smaller group of people? Or are you provide less work, but to more a larger people. number of people and have more, more impact, right? The goal is, yes, that this is going to be a springboard for them to access other opportunities, either become freelancers or um, create something of their own and continue to develop in the AI field. For a lot of them, it's their first experience with something related to AI. Some of them are 
IT students. So for them, it's quite interesting to be working with us. Right. But yeah, it's quite quite a big challenge because uh, a lot of the people that we work with are coming from a background where maybe they're suffering from some type of anxiety or depression. Maybe they are having issues with motivation, with time management and so on. So what we're doing is instead of looking at them from an aid perspective and saying, oh, you know, poor people, we have to assist them and, and help them out. Yeah. We're working on them as employees. So sometimes we're very strict with them. We're all about, you know, respecting the deadlines and so on. So it's all about also building up all of that discipline and work habits and soft skills that they're going to be able to use in the future as well. Yeah, I mean, I guess the idea for me was and again, coming full circle to where we started, when you saw your friend who you said was from Puerto mm. Rico get into Stanford, you thought, she's just like I am, I can do that. And I guess the idea is not that you're creating charity or doing that kind of thing, but you're creating role models for other people saying, wait a second, I've been depressed, I'm in a conflict-affected zone, but that person now has income and is working on a super interesting job, I can do that too. That was kind of the point that I was making, just to bring it full yeah. circle. Is that yeah. fair? Absolutely. And we have one foundation right now that we're partnering with in Portugal, and they're very interested in partner in piloting this model in Portugal to work with refugees and migrants there. And, you know, at first we were all about, okay, how many people should we provide with work and so on? But in the end, they corrected us and they said, yes, you know, this is, this is important, but the most important thing for us is to raise awareness that this thing is even possible, exactly. you know, among the people, among the NGOs that work with them to just create this awareness that it is possible to work online and, and to open up the doors towards this. Yeah. I mean, Myanmar comes to mind for me because of just, like you said, it's conflict affected and there are plenty of people there that would love to have a job right now, but maybe can't. Have you raised capital as well? Fortunately not. <laughs> you say unfortunately or fortunately? Fortunately, fortunately not. We have received some grants, uh, some non-equity non funding for the social impact that we do. But so far we're completely, you know, bootstrapped, relying on client generated, on client revenue, on our own generated income. And we have considered raising funds in terms of like impact investment and funding that would be tied to our social mission. But so far, I think we're in a good spot where we're developing at a steady, slow pace, I would say, compared to, you know, some startups that are receiving tons of funds and growing very rapidly. But, you know, we're always cautious about making sure that we are sustainable, that even if we are receiving some outside funds, that these are going to be invested in making sure that always, you know, our, our burn rate is, is low and we're not going to be at the risk of uh, going bankrupt just when the investment money ends. There are certain businesses that should never get funded. Yours is definitely one of them. And it doesn't mean you can't scale and get much, much bigger and have more and more impact. And at some point, and I understand impact investing, I have a lot of friends in the space, I talk about this a lot on my social innovation podcast, which is a different show. But at some point, there is a conflict where you're going to have to make this constant decision because you have somebody else's money. And they'll put pressure on you to say, maybe you should make a little bit more money and have a little bit less impact. And you don't have that, you yeah. don't have that conflict now. Now you just get to decide with your team. Yeah, yeah. And I frequently feel like I'm a little bit dictatorial or authoritarian because it's, you know, it's my own company. I'm the sole founder. 
So it's very important to put some checks and balances there as well in terms of governing this together with the rest of our team, with our workers as well, with all of our stakeholders included. But this independence that we have right now is something that I really love and I really value and I'm not sure I'm willing to uh, give it up. So have you, I don't remember from the beginning of the conversation, but have you ever had a job where you worked for somebody else? No. (laughs) (laughs) Congratulations, by the way. Some that of those count. unpaid ones that, yeah, we talked about in the beginning, but um, my first job was, was this. So I didn't even have an idea of how companies work, like what do operations and admin stuff look like? How are you supposed to structure the company culture right. and internal processes? So that was also, I mean, it put us at a, at a disadvantage because I Maybe. started off at zero, right? Maybe if I had worked for another company in the same industry, I would be coming in with tons of uh, connections and a big network and you know some potential clients in my pocket that I could tap into. But in the end, I think it was quite an interesting step. We built the company in the way we preferred without copying any existing templates. Yeah, I mean, one of the words you mentioned earlier was bias, right? If you'd worked at a bigger company or somebody else's operation, you would come in with biases that may or may not fit into the company that you want to build. And you know, some of those biases can be subconscious. So yeah. good for you. Okay, did I miss anything that you want to point out? Maybe I can take advantage that I'm on air and make an appeal for more clients to think about the social impact that they're creating, let's yep. say within their supply chains. Because hopefully, you know, a lot of your listeners are coming in from the industry. Many of them might be working in AI. And there is a difference in terms of whether you employ somebody on a crowdsourcing platform like Mechanical Turk and they're completely, it's what they call ghost work. You know, they're a ghost. You don't know them. They're invisible. Uh, You just submit the work and it gets magically completed by some random people across the world versus, you know, somebody like us and and we really want to put a face on um, the person who's doing the work with you and and give them what's due to them in terms of compensation and also recognition of their input. So, yeah, I just want to make this appeal to everybody who's working in the field to really think about where they're getting their data from. Is it ethically sourced and uh, annotated and so on? Yeah, I mean, look, it's in the name of the company. It doesn't say like, it doesn't say ghosts in the loop. It says humans in the loop. I think that's probably purposeful. We're all purposeful. about humanizing them. Exactly. Do you do any ESG style reporting? Do you use any tools to do that? Yeah, good question. We're actually preparing to get uh, B Corp certified, which is a very long process, but this is going to be part of our impact reporting as well, because um, you have to have a lot of policies and reporting in, in place. So right now we're building that infrastructure up. We have like an annual impact report that we publish every year. But it's more for internal purposes. So hopefully this will get us to the next level in terms of uh, reporting our impact. I want to thank you for doing this. Again, Eva Gumnishka, the CEO of Humans in the Loop. How can people get in touch with you? What's the best way to follow up with you if people want to get in touch? Uh, LinkedIn, definitely. Or eva at humansintheloop.org. That's also an option, but I'm very active on LinkedIn. So I'd be happy to connect there. That's where I found you. You were awesome. Thank you so much for doing this, Eva. Thanks a lot, Michael.